Uh, there's only, I was told that as a prize for presiding at this uh, distinguished panel session, um, I'd be able to um, offer a few of my uh, telegrammatic prejudices to begin with. So just let me kick off the discussion with a few thoughts and then turn to my colleagues um, up here for the informed wisdom. Um, I guess the iconic picture, photograph of the European Union is the photograph of President Mitterrand and Chancellor Kohl at the ossuary in Verdun. A reminder of what was the reason for the creation of what became the European Union in the first place. The European Union, an attempt to lash together at the heart of this extraordinary construct, France and Germany, which had fought three wars in uh, 70 uh, odd years, uh, an attempt to promote uh, the political integration of Europe through the economic integration. People very often assume that NATO was America's idea and that the European Union, as it became, was Europe's. Not entirely true. Uh, America was prepared to stay behind after the Second World War uh, and provide a shield for Europe, um, but only on the understanding that um, Europe didn't fall once again into a fra fractious, xenophobic uh, civil war. Uh, Monet was greeted far more warmly in Washington than he ever was in London. And what was created was, in many respects, remarkable. It's not, in my view, nor will it ever become in my lifetime, which I hope to be long. Uh, it's not going to turn into a superstate nor less a superpower, as Mr. Blair, St. John's, uh, once... <laughs> but that was then. Uh, once suggested during the course of a speech not actually delivered in uh, Britain, he made some very good speeches about Europe, usually in Europe, and that one was delivered in Warsaw, as I recall. Um, not a superstate, but a collection of member states which have agreed to a remarkable extent to share policymaking, to share and therefore transform sovereignty, whatever that means, in certain areas, um, and uh, to accept in order to make that work um, a binding dispute settlement machinery, uh, more binding and more accepted than any group of member states anywhere else have ever agreed. And that produced, over the years, some remarkable achievements. It produced the single market. It produced a single trade policy so that Europe now negotiates trade issues with, the, uh, with other parts of the world uh, as a whole. It produced a single environment policy. It's helped to ensure that a group of member states with 7% of the world's population produces 22% of the world's output. That's more than the United States. It's about twice as much, almost twice as much as China. It's about four or five times as much as India. That's the good side. But there are obviously a lot of uh, challenges. I'm not disposed to think of um, uh, life in terms of challenges. I rather agree with, with uh, Michael Oakeshott, who thought that um, life was a predicament rather than a set of challenges. But there are some challenges that Europe has to face. First, it's become increasingly... Uh, coy about accepting some of the consequences of power multiplication so that the attempts to create a European foreign policy 
have fallen way below the rhetoric and the, uh, any effort to uh, speak with a single voice in matters of international economic governance have fallen at the first hurdle. Second, there's no, to borrow from a former political science uh, Don at Keeble, there's no European demos. And that has produced problems of democratic legitimacy uh, within the European Union, with the European Parliament being regarded more as the sort of mother-in-law of parliaments than the uh, mother of uh, parliaments. Uh, And with growing nationalism throughout the continent, partly in response to migratory patterns and partly in response to economic um, problems. Uh, Some of you will have a chance of going, I'm sure while you're in Paris, tearing yourselves away from the academic program and going to the Manet exhibition. There's a wonderful, wonderful painting, well, there are a lot of wonderful paintings there, but there's one wonderful painting of clearly a war veteran uh, on a crutch, one-legged, hobbling down a street, uh, which is full of bunting, uh, French flags, uh, celebrations of nationalism. And I think in Manet's view, uh, the guy with one leg was partly a consequence of that. But nationalism is, again, clearly uh, on the march. There's also, I think, a disjuncture between the various important aspects of Europe's great economic project. On the one hand, Europe, or most of Europe, has accepted the case for a unified monetary policy, um, but it's not going to accept the case for a unified fiscal policy. Uh, And that's produced tensions and difficulties which we've seen played out uh, only uh, over the last year or so. Though those of us who are rather triumphalist in Britain about what's happened should just reflect on how much the pound has been devalued against other currencies over the last uh, couple of years. It's not very long ago that the pound was worth 12 Deutschmarks. It's now, I think, worth in the equivalent euro terms about two. Um, There's clearly an issue of political leadership in Europe. And I'm not sure how you address that. It's the sort of thing which it's easy for ex-politicians to say. But um, President Sarkozy is plainly excitable. Uh, Angela Merkel um, clearly plays Europe much as other European leaders do and thinks of Germany's interest before Europe's interest, which is a complete reversal of the German position which helped create Europe. And Mr. Cameron is semi-detached from the enterprise with all the sort of consequences of a two-tier Europe which Britain has been warned about but has always closed its eyes to. And finally, there is uh, the rest of the world. Uh, Here is Europe with over 20% of the world's output, as I said. Meantime, uh, America looks to Europe increasingly to occasionally use a little hard power and even soft power more effectively, um, but tends to look in vain. Frankly, who gives a toss what Europe's views are on the Middle East? Secondly, um, uh, India and China go a storm. India and China, the two largest countries in the world, soon India to be the largest. In, by 2040, the largest country in the world will be India, the second largest population in the world will be Chinese pensioners. And for uh, until 1820, uh, India and China represented 50% of the world's output, and they probably will um, again 
uh, by the middle or later part of this century? And uh, what does Europe uh, matter in that context, India and China today? Now, we've got a panel of such spectacular distinction that this academic program may go on even longer than you were anticipating. (laughs) Um, But I'd like to um, ask each of my colleagues to address some of the issues which I've uh, just mentioned. Even though um, uh, Brian Unwin has already sung for his lunch, supper, breakfast, um, uh, and I know hugely entertained a number of you on Napoleon, uh, I would like uh, to ask for his views about what's happening to the economy in Europe um, for four or five minutes. I'd like to ask Professor Anne Dighton um, if she can talk a bit about what she thinks is happening to European politics. And I'd then like to ask three of our colleagues on the platform, again for a limited period, to say what Europe looks like from the vantage point about which they know so much. Professor Harris White about uh, how it looks from India. Uh, Professor Linda Ewer to tell us um, about uh, how it looks from Beijing. And finally, Alan Wolfe to tell us um, whether the Americans are now in despair about uh, their old friends on the other side of the pond. So maybe I can ask you, Brian, if you could start by saying a word or two about the uh, European economy. Now, what, what do I do start? I think you just... Talk. D- d- talk. I, th- I think it'll can, pick you can, up. Can everyone hear? Yep. Yes. Sorry, I thought I had to press something. Well, I, I, thank you very much, Chance. I hope this will not sound like a sort of repeat of uh, Yes, Minister. But uh, unfortunately, I agree with most of what the Chancellor has said. Um, And I'd like just to pick up his themes, and I shall do so in an unashamedly pro-European way. Uh, I do think it is absolutely vital that the European Union should play a role in the world commensurate with its economic weight. As the Chancellor said, the GDP, which is 22% or so of world output, is bigger than that of the United States. We have a much larger share of world trade than the United States, and the European Union is the world's biggest aid donor and provider. And we are in an incredibly difficult world, which others may speak about. Again, as the Chancellor indicated, we have China and other countries on the rise. We have chaos in the Middle East for all sorts of obvious reasons. We have a curious United States, even with Obama's president. It's unpredictable, unreliable and totally incapable of controlling its public finances. I mean, at the moment, the United States budget deficit is about 11% of GDP, uh, compared with much less in the European Union. Uh, Public debt is over 90% uh, of United States GDP and rising on all, even conservative forecasts, it's going to get over uh, 100% of GDP. So we have a United States which continues to impose on the rest of the world the need to save, to finance its own deficit and inability to control its public finances. In the European Union, despite squabbles, problems, we know them all, and they're well publicized in the British press. Despite all those, we broadly share the same values across the European Union, in democracy, human rights, uh, and so on, the rule of law. And it seems to me so crucial in this dangerous world that we're moving in, that the European Union should be able to to match its economic weight uh, with its influence in its political influence and in other circles. As the Chancellor said, uh, as recent events have shown, the European Union has not been able to speak with one voice of authority. Now, so I, I would like to see that, and I think there are, if I may mention them very briefly, there are three great threats to this. One is to sort out the euro crisis. I think if the euro goes, it's the end of the European Union. And we need to resolve the whole range of current financial economic problems with which you are very uh, familiar. I mean, spectacularly so uh, with uh, Greece, uh, Ireland, Portugal, some worries about Spain, and so on. And so far, 
With great difficulty, the European Union has been able to just about keep control of the, of the problem. Uh, they set up the European Financial Stability Facility, the EFSF, the uh, 440 billion euro facility with additional funds from the IMF, the 60 billion European Financial Stability Mechanism, and it's these that have been used so far to provide the packages for Greece and Ireland. And I see in the press today in Figaro that uh, um, there is a, or yesterday, there is a package being negotiated with the Portuguese, which one hopes that they will ratify when they get a government. So it's crucial uh, that um, the euro should be stabilized, and at the June Economic Summit, it's crucial that this should be settled within the context of a new, um, something like the competitiveness pact that uh, Merkel and Sarkozy proposed a few weeks ago, uh, which may or may not have uh, new fiscal disciplines and possibly some provision for re restructuring national debt, though that's a terribly complex problem which uh, alarms the markets. So first of all, I'm, I'm optimistic on this, but we need to solve the euro crisis. Secondly, and again, Chancellor, you hinted at it, I think there's a very dangerous rise of right-wing extreme parties in the European Union. We've seen it in Finland, the, the, the so-called true Finns, won 19, 19.19% of the vote recently in their election, and there is a threat that Finland might veto the... Um, Uh, the agreement on the new Euro financial facilities. We have extreme parties here in France with Le Pen. Marine Le Pen is at the moment higher in the polls than, uh, than uh, Sarkozy. Uh, we have it in Norway, Austria, Bulgaria, the Netherlands, Hungary, and so on. And, and there are many reasons for this. It's Im immigration, the recession, and so on. But unless this is, is, is tackled, I think there is a threat to social democracy in the Uh, European Union, and even, uh, as in the case of the Finns, it could serve to block the, uh, the agreement at the June summit, heads of government summit, uh, on the overall Euro financial facility. The third point, which is, of course, very controversial, and you will all have your views on it, and I think, again, we're in general accord, I do think it is very important that the United Kingdom uh, should... Uh, moderate its standoff empty chair policy on the European Union. I happen to believe that uh, the United Kingdom should join the Euro, but I think there's probably only 1% of the rest of the British population agrees with me. I don't want to get into the arguments on that today, although I'm, I'm very happy to debate them. But I do think that full participation in the European Union, such as Tony Blair promised in 1997 but never delivered, Uh, is crucial to the success uh, of the European Union. I think it would restore a much more, as well as adding economic weight and greater stability to the euro as a counterweight to the, as an alternative to the dollar as an international currency, I think that UK membership would help to restore a more balanced equilibrium of power in the European Union, which is perhaps being increasingly, for obvious and good reasons, dominated by uh, Germany. So I think there are three big threats uh, to the future of the European Union as uh, an important player on a very, very difficult and uh, dangerous world scene. I'm, I've uttered many assertions. I haven't argued, really. I've simply asserted a lot of propositions, which uh, certainly in United Kingdom politics would be very controversial. But those are my views, and perhaps I can leave it at that, Chancellor. Thank you very much, uh, Brian. Can I just ask you one question, Brian? Do you think that the heart of the euro crisis is that southern European member states have spent too much or that German and other northern European banks have lent them too much? No, I think, I think it's a combination of both. I mean, Germany, there is an obligation. It, it ought to be reciprocal. There is an obligation on Germany to have more expansionary policies to in, in, encourage uh, consumer spending in, in Germany. Um, and there has been a lack of fiscal control, a lack of proper regulation of the banking sector uh, in, the, in, the, other, in the, the other countries. And, of course, Greece fiddled its statistics. Uh, you know, if we'd known the true state of the, the Greek economy when they applied to join the euro, they would not have been allowed to join. But it's, it's a combination of both. 
But again, it depends how you view the European Union. If you view it um, not as some alien entity, which is what many British politicians uh, uh, view it as, as witness the European bill going through Parliament at the moment, which will require a referendum on any measure which appears to transfer power or competence from uh, the, um, the United Kingdom to the European Union. If you view it like that, then of course you get very angry with Portugal and all the other countries, but if you view this as something in which we're, we're together and there needs to be mutual support, then of course it's our obligation to try and bring on, by, by whatever measure, the economies in, in uh, Portugal, Greece, and so on and so forth. Thank you. Um, Anne, Anne Dighton, could you tell us how things look from your more political vantage point? Thank you very much, Chancellor, and it's an enormous honour to be here. I, I suppose I'm one of the worms. By worms, I view of the university is from the inside, from the teaching and the research. And I'd just like to say before talking about Europe that those of us who teach uh, the Europe, European Union, its politics, policies, are confronted with exactly the same kind of sea change issues um, at the academic level that those administrators that we've heard from and no doubt we will hear from again are facing at the administrative level. What do we teach? Who do we teach? And how do we teach it? What do we research? For whom is our research directed? And how do we go about it? Mm. And there is an intellectual maelstrom out there which parallels the administrative problems with which um, our poor Vice-Chancellor is grappling on a day-to-day -day basis. And so the question of whether we write for policymakers or for bad politicians, whether we write for ourselves, whether we write for the future, what we encourage our students to think about Europe is really one of the most difficult questions, and in the time I've been in Oxford, it's become more difficult more difficult to stop our students trying just to problem-solve the latest crisis. And very few British students. I have one British research student. Out of the 15 or so research students I supervise, only one comes from the UK. So my issues about... research, Yes. My, about research agenda dovetail very neatly with those that um, Andrew Hamilton was talking about on the nature of the university. Having got that off my chest, um, just let me go back. I, I loved Christie's remark about the European Parliament being the mother-in-law of all parliaments because one of the best metaphors for the European Union as it is now was the shotgun wedding, the metaphor that was introduced when, in 1957, the six decided to get together and a very uncomfortable marriage with the UK sulking in the backyard, smoking cigarettes behind the bike shed, metaphorically. Everyone was full of arrière-pensée. No one really knew where this was going. Chris tells us um, very uh, confidently it was a political union with economic means. Well, people at the time weren't quite so sure. It's a very good metaphor. And I have to say, it's still going on. The European Union has been through many bouts of marriage guidance counselling, some of those conducted um, by the United States of America, who got quite good at doing that, and indeed some conducted unintentionally by the Soviet Union as it imploded and eventually collapsed and forced us in the West to think about who we were just as much as those to the East had to think about who they were. So if I can... I only have three minutes... Um, if I could just make three very quick points to perhaps stimulate discussion from the floor. I am acutely aware that everyone in this room has a superlatively high IQ, and it is also quite possible that some of the people in this room have written the primary sources from which I derive my ideas. So I speak with enormous humility. And if you think a one-to-one -one tutorial was frightening in Oxford, just imagine what it's like to talk in front of your own Chancellor, who did it as well as talks about it with such eloquence. So that's my let-out clause. Um, the first point is the resilience of states. We've talked a bit about Britain and France. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This couple, 
This uneasy shotgun wedding of the 50s has now turned into a rather suspect menage à trois between the French, the British and the Germans. And I would like to suggest that although we may be in a Europe that is in relative power terms, a Europe of ad hocery, who gets there, controls the agenda, it is potentially very unstable. And it's not made more stable by the changes in the Lisbon Treaty, um, which, in my view, anyhow, has thus far been rather disappointing. So when the big three disagree, whether it's on enlargement, whether it's on Iraq, whether it's on Libya, it produces instability across the continent between what British diplomats very patronisingly call the bigs and the smalls. And the smalls have quite a lot to say about the way in which the bigs try to manage affairs. So that would be my first point. How do we live with the resilience of states and the, all that goes with it, the need for personalities in TV politics, the need to appeal to your domestic audience, which we have seen so powerfully in the three major countries, Britain, France and Germany? How does that play out in terms of international European politics? The second point relates to European foreign policy, and you only have to open the pages of The Guardian, The Financial Times, or any other of the European press to find disappointment. Europe doesn't speak with one voice. It's the most bizarre phrase, but there it is. And my own view is that European foreign policy as a post-Cold War phenomenon is still very new. And what we seem to be getting the hang of is programmatic foreign policy. That is to say, a foreign policy that looks a bit like domestic policy, where we figure out what we want to do and how we want to do it. What we are lousy at is crisis management. We were lousy during the Cold War, and we remain pretty bad at that even now. And that, for scholars of the EU, is a constant issue for contemplation. If Europe acts on interests, what are its interests? If it acts on values or norms, where on earth do we find those values and norms? And where do we find a common denominator, which is not just the very lowest common denominator? And my third point, to uh, throw the cat among the pigeons, or perhaps throw the pigeons to the cat, is that Libya is a perfect storm. On the one hand, one has the talk about the United Nations, multilateralism, the humanitarian impulse to help those in Benghazi. At the same time, the talk is full of interests, of oil, of dividing states, of migration, nationalism on the march south of the Mediterranean. Those are very, very powerful and entirely contradictory impulses. And it seems to me that the British and French, two parts of that difficult triangle, have created a situation in which we may find ourselves in a very difficult position from which we can extricate ourselves. In 1956, Anthony Eden talked about knocking the parrot off his perch when he talked about NASA before the Suez Crisis. In many respects, there are parallels. We know what we don't want. We are terribly unsure about what we do want and what we are trying to do strategically rather than problem-fixing on a day-to-day -day basis. The role of the United States was ambivalent in 56, and I have to say it's ambivalent today. And it may be that Libya, not the strategically most important country of the Middle East, I happen to disagree with Chris that nobody gives a damn what the Europeans think. I, I actually think that you're um, perhaps over-egging the pudding a tad there. Um, it is important to us, but we don't know the way in which it will go and how Libya relates to the far more strategically important questions of Egypt and Syria. 
And therefore, I think we may see this rather uncomfortable discussion, not just about intervention, the rights and wrongs about intervention, all good issues. And I have to say, our European politics students are rushing to political theory lectures. It's an enormous intellectual shift amongst students of Europe. And we may see more discussion about targeted assassination, both policies which I think to be gravely mistaken on the part of the EU. Thank you, Chris. Thank you very much. Just let me uh, clarify my position. (laughs) Um, I think uh, it should matter what Europe thinks. But since Europe doesn't appear to think, um, nobody's waiting around to find out uh, what Lady Ashton's contribution to bringing um, peace and democracy to the Middle East is. I mean, maybe I'm, I'm wrong about that, but it was Amar Moussa, the Secretary General of the Arab League, who famously described the so-called Middle East Peace Quartet, America, Europe, Russia, and the UN, as the Quartet Sans Trois. Um, Barbara, would you like to tell us whether the Indians have any notion or care a jot about Europe or whether they still see us as individual states? Thank you, Chris. That's a terrifying question to answer. And before I do that, I want to say how glad I am to be here and how exciting it's been to talk to so many alumni of Oxford about India. Um, You have interests in business, in tourism, in medical tourism, um, in culture, in company law, all of which link Oxford University alumni with India, the country I drove to in 1969 and have been studying ever since. Um, In your written tests, I want to ask a number of questions. The first is, does the relationship between the EU and India matter at all? Um, Of course it does, but how? They're consequential actors in the 21st century. They're both very big. Europe has half a billion, and as we've already heard, India has 1.2 billion at the latest census and growing very quickly. Both Europe and India are highly diverse in every single way you can imagine, and I'm not going to list them. Um, They are both attempting to develop modern, secular, um, multi-ethnic societies where people are comfortable with multiple identities. And they are trying to increase their voice in the world. India with one voice, a very, very distinctive voice, Um, And Europe, as we heard from Chris and from Anne, with many voices or no voice at all. Um, But against that, there are lots and lots of differences, um, which make that question more hard to answer. Um, India is growing at I don't know how many times the rate of Europe. It's 8 or 9%, we don't quite know, whereas Europe is growing at 1.8, 2% at the most. Um, It may surprise you to know that the Indian economy, and while everybody else was visiting Les Invalides, I was struggling with zeros this morning in my hotel bedroom. The Indian economy appears to be half the size of the Italian economy or half the size of the French economy, a quarter of the size of the Chinese economy. So we're dealing with a vast number of people cooped up in a tiny economy. Both the EU and India are increasingly unequal kinds of societies. Um, In statistics, there's something called the Gini coefficient, which measures inequality on a scale from zero to one. It's been going up and up for India, but it's still only 3.7, which I simply cannot believe, because in the rice mills that I've been studying for the last 40 years, the difference in take-home earnings between the miller and the female labourer on the drying yard is 1 to 233. It's highly unequal. And India has 55 dollar billionaires and is producing them at the rate of 17 a year, at least 17 last year. So India is an incredibly unequal society, whatever the statistics say. The second 
question is, how important are they to each other? And in a way, I, mean, I invite you to a thought experiment. Um, if India disappeared, what would happen to Europe? The Economic and Political Weekly, which is the social science equivalent of nature in India, talks about the relationship as a strategic irrelevance. And India provides only 2%, a minute percent of um, Europe's imports. But Europe is very important to India as a soft power, to both worlds of India. India is conventionally divided into um, a wealthy world with 250 million people who are as a middle class in some sense. And then the world which consists of the rest, 750 million or more, um, who take home, wait for it, 30 cents a day per person. So this inequality reflects itself in Europe's relations with India, and they matter. Europe is very important. It's the most important single region for India's trade. It's a 30 billion euro trade. Um, and it's not just labor-intensive goods on India's side. It's also IT, which is tremendously hyped. It's what we know India for, but it's only 8 billion euro compared with the other kind of trade. In development cooperation, Sir Brian was talking about this. Um, the EU is the largest donor to India. Um, this is India's second world, the world of poverty, and the EU focuses on health and education, and that's terrific because they're the most um, important triggers of poverty in India, poor health and the cost of trying to get an English language education when you're already very poor. At the same time, it has cooperation agreements with the first world of India for satellites, for regulatory reform and privatization, and for counterterrorism instruments as well as scientific exchanges. So across the board, there's a lot going on between the EU and India by way of aid and then other kinds of development cooperation. And it may surprise you to know that the EU is the second largest investor in India, although you may be more surprised to know that the first is Mauritius, which is India's offshore financial haven, and the US. Um, at the same time, there's a lot of toing and froing in the same kinds of things. There's a lot of interchange in telecoms, in technology, machine tools, and so on and so forth. And we all know that India has begun to invest not simply in France, where it's investing in defense and nuclear technology and in railway technology, but also we know because India has bought up Jaguar and Land Rover and has a huge stake in Coros and biotech and IT in the UK. So that there is a very strong economic link in which Europe is by far and away the major player in the relationship, it's unsymmetrical relationship to India. And of course, we were talking about mother-in-laws and marriage. There are lots of marital spats. Um, India is supposed to be extremely difficult to do business in. And we talk not just corruption, which has hit the headlines over the last six months, um, lack of energy, lack of management skills in India, and lack of physical security in many regions of India. And then India wags its finger at Europe and talks about protection, and Europe wags its finger at India and talks about protection. And we're talking about different sectors of the economy. And so a free trade agreement was set up in 2007, and there have been 10 rounds of meetings, and it still hasn't been signed. So they hope that it will be signed later this year. FDI Watch, which is a civil society organization, um, is revealing the way in which these agreements are being brokered through all kinds of lobbies on both sides. It's not a really healthy exchange. Big retail and uh, interests in protecting intellectual property rights are trying to protect them on the European side. And, of course, India wants liberalized visa arrangements for migration of skilled labor out of India and um, redu reduction in the protection of services and um, what are called phytosanitary standards, which are quality standards, which is how you protect your economy when you can't um, put tariffs up. It's a bit like Joan Robinson said, um, there's only one thing worse than being exploited by capitalism, that it's not being exploited by capitalism. Um, I, I want to 
to turn. Um, Chris kept saying, how does the EU look from India? How does India look from the EU? And the way I see it is, what are the connections between us as European consumers and India? And here, um, for the last 40 years, my kind of research, which is through fieldwork in the cracks between economics and anthropology, has resulted in all kinds of interesting findings. I've been studying a market town uh, which has grown from 30,000 to about 150,000 over the last 40 years. It's a bit like Saint-Nazaire or Annecy or Watford or Mülheim now. It's the size of that kind of European town. And we are now connected. It was a tiny little obscure wholesale agricultural marketing settlement in 1972 when I first went there. And now we are actually connected. We're connected because uh, the town is now buying silk yarn from China and exporting silk goods to the Middle East and Southeast Asia and Europe. Some of the rice that we eat comes from this area of India. Um, The vegetable oil that we may buy in the shops may contain an ingredient from oil extraction industries which come from the layer of bran. And the de-oiled bran supplies fodder for European beef cattle so that the excellent beef that we've had at the reunion may well have been fed in part with byproducts from this particular area of South India. Another student of mine has been looking at metalware in a place called Muradabad, which is a bigger place. Um, They're supplying all kinds of domestic consumer durables to uh, um, retail stores like Carrefour and Gifi in France and Walmart and so on in the US. Um, She's been looking at the labor regimes under which people work Uh, to produce these goods. And they work under at least three different kinds of rules. Um, One is set by the government of India. And there, there are tremendous enforcement problems and delays with enforcing the rules, the labor laws. One is a set of codes of of conduct from European firms, which they attempt to impose on uh, producers in this town. And the third are a set of norms that come from caste and religion and sense of dignity and of value in work. And what she discovered is that people use these different norms opportunistically whenever they can. So the exam question to you is, how do we as European consumers um, seek to improve the conditions under which people produce goods in India for us to consume? What do we do about the fact that the profit-wage relation has tipped completely from um, 25% profit to 75% profit over the last 40 years in India. Um, The last thing, yes, I would talk about, I could talk about the financial crisis and slums, but I'm going to skip it. It had a huge impact on Indian slums, which we've been tracking. The last thing I want to talk about, though, is the particular relationship between Oxford and Europe and India. Um, Last night, uh, the Vice-Chancellor and Chancellor were talking about the long history of, uh, of uh, an enlightened concept of a university such as exists in Paris, in the Sorbonne, and in Oxford. And I was minded of two archaeological sites, one in Nalanda and one in Taxila. Nalanda was a multidisciplinary, college-based university set up in about 500 BC, which lasted till the Middle Ages and Taxila, 500 BC to about 500 AD. So the college concept and the concept of multidisciplinarity have been going, and in a sense, the European universities probably borrowed from these examples in South Asia. About five years ago, we were asked to set up a program on South Asia in Oxford, and we've done that. We have the world's first masters in contemporary India. We have an open invitation for postdocs, visiting fellows, a whole stream of workshops and conferences, and cordial links with South Asian studies in Göttingen, in Lund, in Warsaw, and in Paris. If you're interested, I just remembered why my shoulder bag is so heavy. I brought details, and we'll put them at the table at the front of the amphitheatre afterwards. But anyway, I hope I've given you some test questions that provide some, some thought. Thank you. Barbara, one um, very Oxford test question. Uh, Why do you think, Barbara, that 
despite the fact that on the whole they don't have to learn English before they apply. Why do you think there are um, fewer than half the number of Indian students at Oxford than Chinese? Um, I think China is a richer country. I think it's very much a matter of scholarships. Um, We find that the, the dropout rate of applicants to our course is very high on account of lack of scholarships. Um, I don't know about the undergraduate situation. I, I think Francis Kemscross at Exeter is trying to do something about the fact that undergraduate qualifications, uh, school-leaving qualifications, are not recognised by Oxford. So there's a very good reason why un- that there are so few Indian undergraduates. But with graduates, what we see is an enormous... Um, press of, of extreme talent trying to come to postgraduate Oxford and they are unable to because so many are not from wealthy families and have worked their way through the ranks and need scholarship support. Thank you very much Barbara. Uh, and now Dr Linda Ewer um, who's going to tell us what it looks like from the Middle Kingdom. Um. Good afternoon. It's a, a real pleasure to be here and to see many of you. And I'm extraordinarily delighted to see quite a few faces from Teddy Hall, my college. Given that we drank well past midnight last night, <laughs> it's, a, <laughs> it's a real testament to the, uh, the, the Oxford intellectual interest that you're here. <laughs> Um, Let me first off by saying that the European Union is China's largest trading partner. And oftentimes, the focus tends to be on the U.S.-China relationship. But from Beijing's perspective, it's all about the money. The European Union is the larger trading partner. And in many ways, this relationship has been underestimated in global debates. But now let me tell you a little bit about why it is that the EU-China relationship um, has been somewhat behind the curve. I've been asked recently to become an informal advisor on China to the European Commission. And this is how uh, I've been asked to advise uh, ahead of the upcoming strategic dialogue that the European Union holds with China to work out a better trade and investment relationship. The reason they've brought on external advisors is um, I've been told that the strategy for previous summits has been something like this. Um, How many of you have cooked spaghetti and know how you... (laughs) Thank you very much. I appreciate that. (laughs) like being at an Oxford lecture hall. (laughs) And and you know how you work out when spaghetti is done. You take it and you throw it on the wall. And whatever sticks, well, that that works. That's pretty much the EU policy towards China. Everything goes into the pot, then they toss it on the wall, and then whatever sticks becomes the outcome. (laughs) that they claim when they announce the conclusion of the summit. And when you hear the words, it has been a constructive meeting. (laughs) That means that not a lot of spaghetti stock. (laughs) And so so let me say a little bit about what China wants, a little bit about what Europe wants, and then perhaps just a few words about where China is headed. And I do look forward to a discussion um, with you um, about it. Um, What China wants is to have places to invest in Europe so that it can enter the next phase of development, which is to have multinational corporations. China is fearful of what's called the middle-income country trap. So China may be the world's second biggest economy, but per capita incomes are less than 4,000 U.S. dollars. It's pretty confident it'll be able to double that in the next decade. However, what it's not confident about is whether or not it will join the ranks of rich countries. Very few countries in the world have ever managed to join the ranks of the rich. And one of the keys is, of course, having globally competitive firms. So China's launched a going global 
policy. It launched in 2000. And the very first commercially driven Chinese investment deal was not in the United States. It was in Europe. The Chinese firm TCL bought Francis Thompson brand. And that was the very first commercial deal. And China wants more of that. And Europe, in some ways, is more receptive than the United States for political reasons, but also because the Chinese know if they can't get it from Germany, they'll go to Britain. And so that is what the Chinese want. They want to invest in the areas in which it is weak. And that's a pretty unusual strategy as well. Most countries and companies invest based on what they're good at. The Chinese invest in what they're not good at. So they buy technology companies, and they want to invest in services, high-end services. These are the things that it needs to develop. Although I should say that banking's become slightly less attractive um, <laughs> as a place for investment since uh, over the past couple of years. But nevertheless, that's what the Chinese want. What do the Europeans want? Well, I think many of you here, some of you I've met, have interests in China. It's China's market, China's market access. And this is a perennial issue. For the Chinese, it's about not being overrun by foreign multinational corporations. They want to develop their own industry. That's been the long-standing policy since they opened up in 1979. But the difficulty now for European and Western companies is that on the surface, the level field, the playing field is more level. But behind the surface, it's much more difficult in many ways. Um, China's more assertive. It feels more able to impose what's called non-tariff barriers. And so what you have at the moment is a transition where for the first 30 years, China has always had restrictive policies towards foreign investors. Joint ventures, for instance, used to be the only way a Western company could invest in China. After it joined the WTO in 2001, on the surface, a lot of the laws are facially neutral. The level playing field is there on paper. And my latest book, which is out later on this month by Oxford University Press, I try and, and trace out the ways in which the on the surface level playing field is actually now more unequal than ever before because it's harder to pinpoint the reasons why China is unequal, um, offers unequal terms to foreign companies. From the Chinese perspective, they say the WTO required them to have non-discriminatory treatment towards firms, and you lucky foreign firms, you get the same treatment as private firms in China. So that's the problem, the existence of state-owned enterprises. But China knows that it has learned a great deal from foreign investment. Its strategy has always been to learn and to imitate. Of course, to the Chinese, it's called imitation. To Western firms, it might be called theft. But um, it's trying to bring in foreign expertise. So this opening of China is still happening. It's just more difficult to reign because China is more confident and the market is promising, but it is a challenging place to do business. But there is no doubt China's market is already larger than the United States on many, in many fields, mobile phones, into, uh, the internet, and it will grow at a faster pace in the coming years. So finally, how do the Europeans get what they want? If I knew that answer, Chancellor, I probably, <laughs> I would, Brussels will never let me leave. <laughs> but let me, uh, let me just say very finally that um, to work with the Chinese and to, uh, to work with policymakers, I've done a bit of work on the 12th five-year plan as well for the Chinese government. And to understand what they need and to work with them tends to be the most productive uh, way to do it. The only thing is, the five-year plan, um, the Chinese are themselves not sure what they need in the five-year plan. It's already been implemented, um, of course, starting this year. So for me, the Chinese politicians are remarkably like those in the West. I do apologize, Chancellor.
We've now announced the targets. Now let's work out how to get there. So the five-year plan is really a 30-year plan, as I said. China wants to make sure it becomes a rich country in the next 30 years. What they want is services sector development. What they want is more urbanization. They want to have more upgrading of its industry. And they want to do it while the economy is stable. What they're not sure about is how to do that while they're increasingly globally integrated. And how they want to determine their development is increasingly influenced by the expectations of the global economy. So, for instance, they want to slowly open their financial sector, their external account. They want to do it gradually. And they think that provides stability. And that means slowly appreciating the RMB. But to the world, it looks as if China's too slow, too closed, and manipulating the currency for its own purposes. As usual, there's truth on both sides. But for the Chinese, understanding the next phase of development is oriented more towards domestic demand. And these are the kinds of issues that they're worried about, is one way for the Europeans to offer expertise and to increase links and to really, I think, gain a place um, in terms of strategic importance, that it well warrants. And let me just conclude by saying that because of the tensions between America and China, quite a lot of expertise and quite a lot of research is very well positioned in Europe and specifically at Oxford. Because in many ways, the research that we present, there's been a real push to study China in Europe. And within Oxford itself, we've expanded this area greatly because we're not immediately within the political maelstrom that is the United States when work on China comes out. And similarly, being based in China, there are also restraints on the kind of research. So Europe is well-placed. Oxford is very well-placed to be able to provide the kind of analysis that could really benefit China as well as Europe and the United States as well. And with that, I should probably end before anyone asks me where the RMB is headed this year. (laughs) You're not going to ask me that, are you? I was just going to ask you, uh, Linda, a slightly different and more prosaic question. Um, how much does the China Center at St. Hughes actually exist, and how much is it still a virtual China Center? It's virtual in the best sense of Oxford being virtual because quite a lot of the work is always spread across colleges and departments. So what we're hoping to do is to gather the best um, talent across the university in different fields rather than having a particularly top-down approach. And in fact, that reminds me of China's secret to growth. Does anybody want to know what China's real secret to growth is? Again, if I knew that, I would... Um, is that there's a perception that somehow these five-year plans set the agenda and everything comes from top down. But the reality is, and the Chinese themselves say it best, is that the mountain is high and the emperor is far away. So, (laughs) emperor, the... (laughs) (laughs) So quite a lot of the strength of China is its decentralization. A lot of experiments happen in different cities, in different provinces, and then what works becomes the success of the country and gets rolled out. And that's how I think about China studies at Oxford. Very strong centers in different places, but together in an umbrella so that the best talent and research that we produce could be centralized and then go to the credit of the emperor chancellor. I don't think the Chancellor is the Emperor. The Chancellor is one of the old eunuchs. Well done. Professor Wolf is the John Winnant Visiting Professor in American Government at Oxford. Uh, it's great that uh, he's with us this afternoon, and I'm going to ask him to say a little bit about uh, American perceptions of um, this uh, uh, unidentified flying object, which is the European Union. Well, thank you very much for the honor of speaking to such a distinguished crowd. It's my second greatest honor of the year. The first was being asked to serve as the John Gilbert Wine and Professor at Oxford in the first place. Uh, John 
Winant, as I'm sure most of you know, was the U.S. ambassador to the court of St. James, which I think you say it a little differently in uh, English, uh, uh, who uh, served right after that notorious ambassador named Joe Kennedy um, and had the amazing task of trying to get Winston Churchill and Franklin Delano Roosevelt to talk to one another um, successfully. He was one of the great Americans uh, of our uh, time, of the 20th century. Uh, there was talk that he might have, even though he was a Republican governor from New Hampshire, that he might have been placed on the Democratic Party's uh, ballot in 1944 as the vice presidential candidate uh, with Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and had that happened, history would have turned out very differently. Uh, John Gilbert Winant's son, Rivington Winant, who died just a few months ago, endowed a chair in his father's name, and to be able to hold that chair uh, named after such a distinguished person at Balliol and at the Rothermere American Institute is just one of the great honors of my life. I, I mention all this because whatever the future of U.S.-European relations, they won't be anything like the relationship between Europe and the United States at the time that John Gilbert Wine was the ambassador to this country, uh, to that country, the country we came from. Uh, this was a time, of course, of tremendous cooperation between the United States and Europe. This was a time in which the United States was willing to look outside of its own borders uh, it was willing to do things that might not have been in its immediate short-term self-interest, but served the greater good in the sense of creating strong alliance uh, between itself and countries that were enormously weak at the time, uh, but that we recognized would be in our interest to make stronger over time. That is almost the complete opposite of the situation we face at the moment when the dominant concern in U.S. politics is only the strength and only the autonomy of the United States with little regard for the rest of the world. I have two general rules that I try to follow assiduously whenever I speak to non-U.S. audiences. The first is not to engage in easy anti-Americanism because especially in Europe there's all too much of that. Um, and the second is not to be excessively partisan and to reveal my own views. Uh, I will violate as strongly as I can both of those uh, injunctions in the few minutes that are available to me. Um, we generally say, uh, we who study politics and history to some degree, that uh, caution ourselves against being uh, given to saying that something is unprecedented. The human history is so variety, so many things have happened in the course of human history that almost nothing is unprecedented. I believe that when you have a two-party system and when one of you two parties is taken over by lunatics, that is unprecedented. <laughs> now, in the interests of being nonpartisan, I won't mention which party it is, but I'll leave. <laughs> Except to say it's not the Democrats. I have to say, I, I've never seen a situation like this. Never. In my life, I've been following politics for a half a century, and I have simply never... It would be one thing if you had a multi-party system and one of the parties was taken over by lunatics. It would be another thing even if you had three parties uh, and one of them. Not that I wish that upon you. Uh, but you only have two. Uh, generally speaking, one alternates after the other, and I've never been so worried about the future of my country. Now, I have to say with respect to one of my injunctions, and I hope you'll understand, uh, I'm trying not really to say this in the perspective that one party is liberal and the other party is conservative, and that because I'm liberal, I think the other party is lunatic because it's conservative. Quite the contrary. I, I am a liberal, but I think one thing that liberals really require is a strong form of conservatism. And I wish we had a strong conservative party in the United States. I wish we had a party uh, that believed in time-tested experience, that was cautious, uh, that all the things that we generally associate with a conservative temperament. Instead, we have quite a radical party, uh, a party that, should it come to power, well, you all remember Donald Rumsfeld and, you know, the old Europe and all that. You will look with uh, uh, regret at the passing of Donald Rumsfeld's time as Secretary of Defense if this party comes to power. Unfortunately, it doesn't even have to come to power at the present time because as in a two-party system, it can exercise enormous influence even when it's not in power, as it's been doing 
uh, since Barack Obama has become, uh, become president in shifting the discourse. Again, it's not about liberal and conservative, in shifting the discourse into an extraordinary fantasy land uh, as opposed to the reality, the reality of high unemployment, the reality of the budget deficits uh, that uh, Brian mentioned. We are literally living in a situation, I think, in the United States where uh, um, uh, it becomes almost impossible to put on the political agenda what the real world looks like and, and what we need to do to do something about it. What will all of this have an uh, impact in terms of Europe? Well, I, I, I think that uh, uh, as an American, I believe we're still in almost exactly the same situation we are when John Wynne was the ambassador to Great Britain, and that is that we in the United States need a strong Europe, that a strong Europe is very much in our interest. Uh, but uh, the question of, you know, if uh, Europe would disappear, what would happen? Uh, if India were to disappear, what would, what would happen in terms of the way Europe thinks about it? The question in the United States, if Europe were to disappear, what would Americans think about it? Europe is not high on the American political agenda. Um, uh, even the parts of the world that are hotly contested at the moment are not high on the American political agenda. It is said that the chances of whether or not Barack Obama will be reelected depend very, very much upon economic indicators and have almost nothing to do with anything that happens in the rest of the world. So I, I, I think that uh, I don't want to leave you, you know, with a sense of gloom. I think there are uh, two possible futures for the United States uh, with respect to what we do within the United States and with respect to what we do within Europe. Uh, and one of them is the good news and the other one's the bad news. Uh, the good news, um, or I'll start the other way. The bad news is that we do, the bad news is that we do something, anything. Uh, the good news is we do nothing. Uh, gridlock is probably our greatest uh, hope against extremism at the moment. Uh, not doing anything at the present time. If Congress were to do nothing, for example, about the budget deficit, uh, nothing at all, pass no legislation, it would cure itself in a matter of a couple of years. Doing nothing with respect to foreign policy, with respect to uh, also maybe uh, uh, probably the best thing to do at the present time for the United States. So I'm very hopeful for the future of my country. I'm very hopeful <laughs> that we will have consistent political deadlock for at least the rest of my life. Thank you very much.